Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey, frontline friends, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy, and after years working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life, behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. I have been waiting for this episode for a long time. Before even starting this podcast, I had come across a blog, fuelforfirstresponders.com. And I loved it so much that I reached out to the author. We eventually got on a phone call together after several emails back and forth, and it was such a joy to talk with the incredible Jennifer Pound. During that phone call, I knew I needed to have Jen on the show, and my hope is that you'll hear from her a number of times, because I think she offers so much wisdom and insight. For those that don't know, Jennifer Pound is a retired staff sergeant with the RCMP culminating her career working as the public face of the Metro Vancouver's Integrated Homicide Investigation Team. Married to an RCMP member, Jennifer's world has been steeped in devotion to community service, and she has the scars to prove it. Now off work due to an operational stress injury, Jen shares in her blog and in other forums as an advocate about mental health and wellness in the workplace, and the need for better systems responses for first responders and frontline workers. Her advocacy work has her in the news, and I will post links to all these pieces in the show notes, so you can learn more about Jennifer and her efforts to advocate for you. It's truly a gift to have Jen with us today as we continue our series on daring leadership and work to talk in a real way about the system challenges faced by those on the front lines and experienced insight into the changes we need to make happen. Well, welcome, Jen. It's so great to have you here with us today. Um, I want to kind of open, I know that there are a lot of people who likely know a little bit about you or have seen you on the news um, or doing different pieces. And I I know that there's a lot of people who maybe haven't heard a, a little bit of your story. So I wonder if we could start off with just you sharing a little bit about yourself and what kind of led you into your work as an RCMP member, some of that background story. Yeah, for sure. Um, So I have just retired with close to 24 years of service. Uh, Mm -hmm. I got sort of wrapped up into the world of policing um, at a very young age because my father was uh, a part of the RCMP. Mm -hmm. Um, So I knew roughly at about 15 years old that that's where I wanted to go and the direction I wanted to head in. Um, So at about 22, 23 years old, I graduated from depot in Regina. And I served my whole time in the lower mainland, I started out at the university detachment, 
and um, transferred around to various units within the Lower Mainland and ended my career at the uh, Integrated Homicide Investigation Team, where I spent about six years there prior to my retirement. My husband is RCMP. My brother and his wife are RCMP, who have just also recently retired. Um, So it's kind of a family event. And, uh, you know, I don't regret it. It was a great career. It's certainly had, uh, it's certainly been impactful uh, in many ways on my family and myself. But um, yeah, looking back on it, I wouldn't change it for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty incredible thing to say, particularly given that um, at this stage in your career, part of your retirement has been as a result of your experience of PTSD related to your work. Um, and I, I do wonder a little bit what you can share about that part of your experience, like how you noticed that developing for you, some of the factors that you feel like the system contributed to that. Um, and, and maybe even that piece about how you're still able to hold that tension of while this has been a hard piece, I also wouldn't change any of what I've done here. Right. Yeah, that there's just a lot of learning that I've done throughout the process, uh, particularly in, I would say, the past five years, Um, learning about myself, learning about the impact of the job, the good and the bad. And, um, you know, trying trying to balance that out with a husband that's also currently serving. So there's some there's some, you know, difficulties with that. But he's been extremely supportive in this, this journey. And I have four children. Uh, with him and, and you know it's, it's all about lessons that I'm learning and teaching to the kids and trying to trying to keep as much positive in the picture as I can um, but yeah I, I would say I guess it's been about three or four years ago now that I struggled with the physical symptoms of an illness um, yeah, I just I just couldn't figure out what was going on with me. I was tired all the time. I was sick and just felt like I constantly had the flu mm-hmm. and my energy levels were gone. Um, I just wasn't coping. My, res- my resiliency was gone. Um, so it all started with me. It kind of morphed uh, into PTSD through just recognizing the physical symptoms that were going on. And, and I was diagnosed through my GP um and and it, my journey kind of started from there which has been quite a long and extensive one yeah yeah did it surprise you that that was the diagnosis like coming in with i feel like i've had the flu for forever was it surprising for you that ptsd was the the outcome of that it it was surprising for me that it manifested physically but i wasn't surprised at the fact that i was diagnosed with it there was um i mean it was it was the totality of my 24 years in policing, I can't just say it was I hit itself, but I hit was certainly challenging in that, you know, we were dealing with anywhere from 35, 40 files to 65 files, uh, homicide files a year. So when you add that up over a six year period, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of trauma Um, I dealt a lot with the families of the homicide victims. So for me, it, it, it ended up being just too, I ended up being too empathetic if that can be possible. Mm -hmm. I started to just absorb some of the pain and the trauma from the families. Um, and I started to really 
sort of fixate on the fine details of what those homicides looked like. So it mm-hmm. was uh, it was damaging for sure. So when they diagnosed me, I wasn't surprised, but I was surprised that it was linked to the physical component. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this really interesting, um, there's a book called When the Body Says No uh, by a local physician, actually, Gabor Mate. Um, and in the book, he talks about how trauma does tend to manifest itself as physiological. And this really interesting idea of like, if we if we ignore it long enough, eventually our brain will find a way to communicate there's a problem to us that we cannot help but listen to, right? And so when I talk to clients about it, I often talk about, um, you know, it's kind of like a baby. Like if you've ever had a young child, you know the cues, right? There's that like early like eh, eh kind of cry where yeah. if you catch it there, you're going to curb yourself from a lot of trouble. But if you let it go a little longer and you miss those subtle cues, it it gets a little bit louder and it gets a little bit louder. And if you ignore it for really, really long periods of time, eventually, even if you go in to soothe that baby, you will not be able to because it is so far gone right. that it is it is beside itself right and to some extent our brain kind of works like that where it has these like early indicators but we often either ignore them or fail to see them because we're so busy taking care of everybody else which is what i see a lot with first responders and frontline workers is this helper's heart of i just have to help everybody else that we don't notice it for ourselves until it's that baby that can't be consoled. Like our own brain is in that place of not being able to like calm itself or regulate itself anymore, even when I do attend to it because it's gone on for so long and it does show up in our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of fascinating for me to see that. And it was, uh, it was kind of explained Mm -hmm. to me in that, you know, it's, I think it's survival mode where you're just putting all of those individual cases and investigations into a file cabinet and eventually it gets so full you're not able to close that off anymore and I think that's what happened to me where I just didn't I didn't have the coping skills to compartmentalize anymore and particularly when you know it made me realize when I I dealt with a couple of files that were um, sort of close to home and that Mm -hmm. I had connected with personally and it really made me realize how my resiliency was just not it was non-existent and I wasn't able to wasn't able to compartmentalize which was my guard it was kind of my saving grace so once that was taken away it was an eye-opener for sure yeah well and it does it's like this wearing away that happens really slowly last week on the show I was talking with um T.C. Randall who is a nurse and author. And we talked about this idea of it's kind of like Chinese water torture. Like it's not any one drop that is like the thing that made it all fall apart. It's the constant, persistent, chronic wearing that is crazy making and is the undoing piece. And part of what's hard about that is often when we're dealing with workplace um, insurance companies and things like that, the big question is, well, what was the event, right? Like what was the thing that gave you PTSD? Yeah. And the reality is, is that's actually not, I mean, generally how PTSD actually works. PTSD is more often than not a cumulative piece that yeah. happens over time with multiple exposure. Yeah. I think that's kind of what I learned as well is that for first responders, yeah. particularly it's complex, it's complex PTSD. So you're not totally. just dealing with one uh, incident that's impacted you. It's trying to delve into really what that big thing is. 
Um, and the big thing is, is the accumulative wear over time that you're just not totally. able to process anymore. And that, that's kind of where, where my story yeah. began as well. I think that that's a story I hear a lot in my counseling work. And one of the things that I often joke about with my first responder clients is this piece of like your humanity showing. Um, and and the, the piece is like, I get a lot of people who I talk to who are like, you know, why why do I see other people able to, to cope with this better or, or not seem as impacted by it? Um, and I often say that the options about that are either that that person isn't telling the whole truth about how impacted they are, like they're better at hiding it right now, or they are so disconnected from their sense of humanity that they are relieved of the impact. The challenge is, is do you really want to be disconnected from your humanity? Like the reality is, is the people who tend to be really amazing at the work are the ones who can empathize. The hard part is that that also leads us to be more significantly impacted and injured by those experiences. Yes. So it's like a catch 22. And it's part of why I often talk with people. And I've said it on the show a bunch of times that like nobody comes out of this unscathed. There's just not a way of doing it without having some amount of impact if you're holding your humanity intact. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and yeah. it does. It made me, you know, there's so many families that I connected to. And I think um, that on the one side, that was that was great. But on the other side, that's where I started to really internalize everything. And it created a fear of, I can't imagine having to go through what they're going through. So totally. going through my yeah. own experiences in my own life, it creates this fear that that is going to happen to you as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure it does. Um, when did you know that you had to step back from the work to care for your wellness? And what do you think you've learned about yourself and the work through that process? Uh, well, it, it comes back to the physical symptoms. I knew I had to step back then. Um, I know when I was signed off, it was a, it was for two weeks and that was to try and combat whatever this flu or whatever right. the physical illness was. And when I took those two weeks off, I just became so much worse. Like just being off work. It's like my body slowed down and had finally a chance to process a little bit of what was going on. Yeah. And it was totally. really uncomfortable. I, I wasn't, I, I didn't like having that much time to think about things. So I was really kind of in a hurry to get back to work. Um, right. The distraction feels yeah. relieving. Right. Yep. Yeah. It gave me a purpose and it, it was yeah. something that, you know, it, I didn't like to stop and slow down and actually think about all the stuff that was happening. But I think what I learned is that that was just inevitable. It didn't matter if that happened then or if it was going to happen two years down the road. Uh, yeah. It was going to happen. And yeah. um, it forced me to think about things. It forced me to really take a look at how I was or wasn't processing um, all of that trauma. Yeah. And um, just some of the skills that I've learned to deal with it and just realizing how many people are affected by it um, as first responders go was really yeah. an eye-opener. But, um, yeah. I mean, it, on the one hand, it made me feel a little bit better to know I wasn't standing on an island all by myself. But on the yeah. other hand, I was so disheartened to see how many people were going through similar journeys. Um, and, and the thing that really was hard to take is that so many are not supported. 
they're trying to go through this journey by themselves. And for me, when I was first going through it and sort of fumbling my way in the beginning stages, I literally felt like I was losing my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a scary place to be when you don't have the answers and, and um, you feel like you're, you're the only one in the world that's going through it. So I, I really learned that as I went on through the years, just talking and, and getting insight from people that have been through it, um, from specialists that had really um, some great uh, coping mechanisms to, to deal with it. They, they were super helpful. So group therapy, I thought I wouldn't like. I ended up really, really enjoying yeah. that. Um, okay. There's a certain bond that comes with knowing that you're, you're all kind of fighting the same battle. Um, yeah. But yeah, so so many things that I've learned along the way, and, and uh, which is why I've created the blog and why I'm speaking out is just so people know that they're not battling this by themselves and that there's uh, light at the end of the tunnel. Totally, totally. In the midst of this process, it's been years in the making now for you. Are there things that you wish that you might have known sooner that might have protected you a little bit differently? Um. I, I, well, I guess I wish that I knew um, more about what PTSD was. Like, I, I didn't know anything about an operational stress injury. I was really naive to that. And when I was working um, in the RCMP as a staff surgeon, I was, I was seeing individuals that weren't well, and I was helping them go through the process and transitioning them over into um, the health services unit where, you know, I thought they were in good hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I was on this side of it that I realized that that wasn't the case. There was not a yeah. lot of support coming from our own organization. And that okay. was very, very damaging. Um, yeah. You know, it's one thing to recognize you've got a, an OSI. And it's another thing to be not supported by your organization. And what was really important to me is that I needed to feel connected to my work. I needed to get back to work quickly and that didn't happen. And it really exacerbated my injury. It really added to the length of time it has taken me to get back to a place of peace. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the really hard things about that process, I think, is that there's not a lot of clarity about who I see and how that works and the timeline on it and what the gradual return looks like. And with the timeline on that, it like we, uh, the really interesting thing about PTSD is it's, it's clustered as part of an anxiety disorder, right? Like it, it means that we feel not sure and that we long for a sense of certainty or what to expect next. And then we, are in this position where there is no certainty and there's no guidelines around what to expect next and crazy that that then provokes more symptoms. Right. And so it's this really like catch 22 kind of place. And then we add this piece of, and also while you're not well, you need to be your best advocate. So you have to do all of the pieces to make you be okay, but you're not okay. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's so many different pieces to it that are that catch 22 that I think it's this like consistent feeling of being hung up in a system that just isn't working for you. Right. Yeah. And it's impossible to have a a speedy recovery if there's such a thing. Totally. Totally. 
Yeah. yeah. You're, you're constantly looking for the answers and you want it to happen quickly so you can get back to work and be healthy. But at the end of the day, they just, they want you back to work. And it's, it's essentially yeah. a policy unit within the RCMP. They, um, yeah. they don't help you find help. They just mm-hmm. want to know when, what your diagnosis is, what your prognosis is. And for mental health, it's very, very difficult to come up with those answers quickly. So while you're trying to figure out what's wrong with you, you're getting the pressure to identify what's wrong with you and, you know, let us know when you're coming back to work. While Mm -hmm. that pressure is really, really difficult to, to sort of process as you're trying to figure out how you're, you're getting yourself help and that's damaging. Um, You know, the very first call I got when I was off work is, was from the graduated return to work unit saying, you know, what can we do to get you back to work? And I'm in the process of still trying to figure out what's going on with me. Um, yeah. So it's just there. there's not enough internal communication going on um, to help the people properly. It's adding stress. And, you know, there's, there is stigma um, mm-hmm. with first responders. Um, so that's, that's another difficult process or a difficult hurdle that you have to get past. And and when you're sort of being asked when you're coming back to work before you're well, it doesn't help yeah. that part of it. Lots For of guilt. Sure. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, right, is I actually don't know a lot of first responders or frontline workers who are off work and don't want to be back. Right. right. Like, it's not like it's fun. It's not like it's the choice I would have made for myself. Um, we generally go into the work because we love the work. Yeah. It just got too hard and too complicated for too long. And I have to do some pieces to help make that a little bit better before I can even consider that. So it's hard when you're getting that feedback that says, well, you're not doing enough or you're not doing it fast enough, or, you know, maybe you don't want to come back when the heart of it really is that like, I got into this to be in this. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, it's impossible to compare a mental health injury with say, a physical injury. If you have a broken leg, it's very, totally. uh, it's, it's, it's just a little bit of an easier process to identify what that injury is and what your prognosis is going to be. When you're yes. dealing with mental health, it takes a lot of time to delve into that individual's, um, you know, struggles, I guess, is, yeah. is what I'm trying to come up with. It, it, everybody struggles with it differently. Everybody's been exposed to it for different amounts of time. And yeah. we'll process that differently. So that takes a little bit of while to, to, um, to come up with the answers for that. And, and it did, it took me a long time. And while trying to come up with the answers for when I'm going to get back to work, the pressure of those questions flooding me to, yeah. to have answers were, were damaging. Totally. Well, and I think one of my beefs with the system um, is is the fact like you said a minute ago that you know what one of the things I wish I had known sooner was more about PTSD and operational stress injuries right that um if we did a better job of front-loading some of that information and making that uh part of your training at depot and part of you know ongoing continuing education that happens throughout the course of your career and if it were something that there were like routine, regular ways of checking in that destigmatized that process and that intervened at points that maybe earlier indicators of, hey, a problem might be coming, right? 
if we did that, we would likely decrease the amount of time that people needed to be off work down the road. One of the things I said, again, in the episode we did last week with TC Randall was this piece of like, I find it really frustrating as the clinical counselor who specializes in trauma on the other side of it, where I get handed someone through, you know, the workplace insurance company groups and things like that. And I'm the one who gets the phone calls of, you know, how quickly can you help get this person back to work? And I kind I mean, the thing I often say to those claim providers and pieces like that is, you know, this person was in the position where they were so broken, like so far down the rabbit hole. You cannot expect that this is going to be a snap my fingers and get them back to work kind of situation. And the reality is, is that the culture of a lot of these systems does make that be the outcome where people are so far down the rabbit hole by the time they recognize that, that it's not okay and that they need help, that the process to get them back out is so much further and longer than it really needed to be if we had done better jobs at prevention and early intervention in yeah. the process. Yeah, I agree. And that's, I think, the part that's crazy making to me. And it's exactly why we did this podcast and we did the course that we made and like some of these pieces because it's so frustrating to continue to get these people who are so fantastic. Like I adore the clients that I see, but every time I see one of them and get a new one, I'm like, why have we not done this better yet? How, like how many people do I have to deal with who are like, I didn't know any of this. (laughs) Why don't you know this? Why is this not information that we're, that we're sharing more widely? Why is this so hard to get into people's hands? Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. Right. And uh, I think yeah. there's an emphasis uh, from, you know, the, the management levels for the, the people to sort of be aware of their own people and watch for signs. And, you know, that's a, yeah. that's a big ask when you're right. dealing with, especially in like within the RCMP, we're police officers. We're, we're not, we're not mental health workers. So we can listen to our, to our people and, and we can, you know, help them as best we can and direct them to, to help, but to yeah. put the onus on the managers to watch over them and be aware of signs and mental health issues. That, that to me is a tough ask. That's, um, that's totally. a lot. Yeah. Well, and how many, how many members would actually, you know, go to a manager and disclose any amount of like, one of the things I often hear is I can't talk about this at work, I can't show that this is a problem. Because these people are counting on me, right. Mm -hmm. And if I show that I'm not okay, they're not going to feel okay with me. And it's such an interconnected, reliant system, that we all have to look really tough and strong in order to make everyone else believe that everything's going to be okay. Right. And so, you know, it, can we really expect that people are going to demonstrate symptoms readily that are going to be noticeable and observable to someone else from a management perspective? Right. There's so many layers to the unreasonable of that ask. Yeah. And I, I yeah. you know, I have to say one thing that really, <clears throat> excuse me, stood out to me is, that when you're a first responder, for, for me, being a police officer was, um, it was what I was supposed to do. <clears throat> so I, attending these files, it, it was my calm place. You're, you're dealing with other people's trauma. Um, you're, you're going 
um, code three to files day after day, and you're trying to do threat assessments before you even pull up to these scenes, your mind is racing. So there's a certain elevated height of adrenaline and all that stuff pumping through your system just on a day-to-day basis. So when you take a step back and you're off work, that anxiety level starts to increase because there's no outlet for it. So that was a huge wake up call for me. Um, just, just being uneasy day to day because I didn't have anywhere to place that purpose and that adrenaline. And I, you know, I I was on my way actually ironically to a group therapy session and I came Mm -hmm. across a, a motor vehicle accident on the highway. Yeah. And it was a few cars that had been involved and, and the one passenger wasn't looking that good. She was she was sort of clutching her chest and there was just a little bit of chaos and stuff that was going on. And I'd already been off for a couple of years at this point and it's where I felt the most calm. I hadn't felt yeah. that calm in so many months. Mm-hmm. And it was such an eye-opener to just be placed back in a, in an area of kind of frenzy and, um, you know, other people's trauma and to feel relaxed in that, it, it made me realize how many other first responders also have that as their outlet. It's what we're used Mm -hmm. to. So you take that away from us. And I, I believe that's why it's important to get your people back to work quickly. They need, and they thrive in that environment. Yeah. Well, and it's that space of how do we do it quickly but well. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. By looking after yeah. yourselves and, and awareness. Totally. And yeah. Just not being blindsided by all of a sudden one day you become sick and holy cow, what is this? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, given your experiences within the law enforcement system and knowing that we are kind of in this this series right now talking about leadership and changing systems from the inside out. What are your thoughts about changing existing systems? Like, what do you think need to be prioritized changes specific to RCMP, but maybe more generally given some of the exposure and feedback you've had from first responders and frontline workers more generally? Well, I think uh, the biggest problem is I'm with, with the RCMP, there's the R2MR, there's certain programs that they're implementing where they're, they're trying to get rid of the stigma and they're telling people, hey, if you're not well, put up your hand and identify and we'll get you the help. Right. The problem with that is you put up your hand and there's no help available. The systems are over capacity. So for the RCMP particularly, they need more funding. They need Mm -hmm. more funding to add more resources, but there Mm -hmm. also needs to be the bigger picture of more funding for therapists and specialists to be available on the other end. I know when I was uh, diagnosed with, with the PTSD, I sat in my car when I left the doctor's office and I called three different psychologists and they were all about a three to five month wait list just to get in and see them. And when you're dealing with an OSI, that is an extremely long time to wait. Yes, it is. And it's just, uh, you start to internalize everything and it makes you feel a little bit, a little bit crazy. Like I, I, I wasn't sure where to take uh, where to take the diagnosis and how to feel about it, or even what my next steps were going to be. Totally. So if you're going to tell people to put up their hand and self-identify when they need help, there has to be the resources on the other end to help them. And totally. when you're dealing even just specifically with the RCMP, you have municipal police forces, you have fire, you have BC Ambulance Services, 
everybody's knocking on the same door to get the help from these individuals that yeah. uh, there's just not enough of. Well, and there's, you've kind of hit on a different systems level problem. Um, and I don't even know if this is a piece that you are aware of, but um, BC specifically, uh, a couple of other provinces as well, have an additional layer of challenge in terms of that accessibility piece. So um, in BC, counseling is not a regulated profession by government. So there isn't like a college of counselors that um, oversees the ethical standards and quality of care pieces for the public. So as a result of that, a lot of insurance companies, including the insurance companies that cover RCMP, don't provide for access to counseling through a counselor. They only provide through psychologists because there is a college of psychologists that oversees and governs their standards of care. And so on a political level, um, there's been lobbying for decades by counseling groups to have a college of counselors identified um, to be able to say, look, this is a service that should be covered by more insurance companies. And a lot of insurance companies will cover, but the ones that cover most first responders don't. And so the challenge is, is when you limit it to just psychologists, it's a far smaller pool because they have to do six additional years of education beyond what we do to be able to do that. And yet most of the psychologists I know spend the bulk of their time doing assessment and diagnostics. They don't actually do therapy. And so the number is even smaller because once you get into the pool of psychologists, which is already a really small pool, you're now narrowed down even further to the ones that actually do clinical treatment, as opposed to just doing the like, let's do the ticky box form, give you a diagnosis and send you on your way, which is what the majority of them do. And so what ends up happening is we as clinical counselors are the ones who generally do the actual treatment interventions and are highly trained in those pieces. We don't do the diagnostic assessment pieces. That's what the psychologists do. But we are limited out of the pool. We're not covered by your insurance companies because of this lag in the political system agreeing to just cover this piece. Right. Yeah, it's right. another another instance where policy and protocol really prevents the the best thing from happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which yeah. is fascinating to me, and it's interesting because I do I am a contracted provider through one of the major work insurance companies, and so I do get a lot of first responders through that contract. So I get injured workers while they're off work um, through that contract. And so I qualify under that as a clinical counselor. Um, but I don't qualify under the general program that your insurance company overall funds. And what's really interesting is I get a lot of first responders who come to me after they've seen like four five, six other clinicians, um, often psychologists that they've had to funnel through who didn't know trauma therapy. They didn't know about what it looks like to work with a first responder because it's also kind of unique in its own right. Um, And so they go through all these people kind of feeling like, oh, this system, even when I am in it, can't handle it. Yeah. Um, And so finding the the right person and getting into the right place and then being able to access that financially because of what is provided for. There's so many levels to what makes that complicated. Right. And, and finding the, the, you raise a good point, like finding the right person is, is just as crucial as finding the help to begin with. 
I know I, I had gone through a few uh, psychologists and it just, it wasn't the right fit. Um, yeah. And it kind of left me going, am I just not fixable? Um, mm. So by the yeah, time I found my, the psychologist that I have now, who has been absolutely fantastic, he was already kind of dealing with me behind the eight ball because it was just yeah. sort of my injury was getting worse as time went on. Um, right. and, and, you know, for me, it was, uh, I was referred to the operational stress injury clinic. Uh, it took six months to get in there for my intake meeting. Mm-hmm. And then once they determined um, that I did in fact have a, an OSI, um, it took another 12 to 18 months to actually get in there and start seeking treatment. Wow. So the amount yeah. of time that goes by is just damaging. So, so damaging. to turn yeah. away good people that are experts in the field, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I know. Well, and this is the, this is the challenge, right? Um, so one of the pieces that we've kind of identified is that on a systems level, the access piece needs to change. Are there other pieces that you feel like need to shift or be prioritized as changes as we like, okay, so really, as we have walked through this leadership series, um, our focus has been on how do we as people who are in the trenches of the work right now, who are facing the difficulty of doing the work, but are also facing the difficulty of doing the work within a context that is often adversarial, um, where whether it's management level or bureaucratic systems kind of within that upper echelon of leadership, um, are choosing to lead from a place that is not necessarily helpful and at times can actually be actively damaging on top of the very difficult jobs that you do. Um, We're trying to tackle this idea of how do we create a culture shift? How do we as individuals, as teams, work towards being a different generation of leaders that adapts and changes how we choose to lead going forward. And so from that perspective of um, kind of knowing that we're talking to a group of people who hope to be future systems leaders and shapers, what what would you hope for them to know or value or prioritize as they cultivate and create the system going forward? Well, I think one of the big pieces um, I mean, coming from the RCMP and, and policing in general, it's quite regimented in in your rank system. So it, it's never really been an option to speak truth to power. Yeah. Um, and I, I think as leaders, you have to be open and receptive to other ideas. I think the strengths come from listening to the people that work for us and below yeah. us and I think you take the mindset on that we're working together, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be open be to collaborative. Right. It's not criticism if somebody is saying something against what you say. It could mm-hmm. be that you're actually not correct in what you're thinking. And just right. being open and listening to what other people have to say might be the beginning of change that in fact helps the management out as well. So yeah. Instead of thinking everybody's against you and criticizing you and speaking up against you as a manager, I think being open to other ideas is where um, a good place to start would be. Totally. So the series we've been focusing on a book written by Brene Brown called Dare to Lead. 
and she talks about um, this idea of being in the arena. So the idea of being like in a boxing arena and that we, when we show up in really authentic ways in our lives, particularly in our work, no matter how hard we try, we're going to get a little bit beat up. Like it's, it's not always going to go well for us. Right. Um, and yet that showing up authentically in the arena is better than being one of the hecklers on the outside, right? They can be really loud and obnoxious, but it doesn't, they're not actually doing the living of life. They're just criticizing from the sidelines. Right. Right. Yeah. And in today's day where you're hiding behind sort of social media and platforms where you don't have to have those difficult face-to-face discussions, people tend to voice their opinions quite rawly. Um, So you have to have a bit of a thicker skin and you have to kind of be aware of who's against you and who's actually trying to help you make that positive change. Right. Yeah. So like, how do we, how do we do better collaboration and align together in a common direction? Right. Yeah. Are there any other thoughts that you have about some of those pieces that we as, um, you know, maybe those lower echelons right now, but hope to be in that position down the road where we would have more influence? Are there ways that you imagine we can start in that lower level influence place to work at gradually cultivating that collaborative spirit? Um I think as leaders, we make it collaborative. It's not all about us and how we're going to get our next promotion. And, um, you know, sometimes it starts at the very bottom and, 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 you know, giving people a voice, giving people that have gone through it a voice to help make that change. Because the change doesn't always have to just come from above. You know, it starts below, it starts with those really difficult conversations and it's, and it's the empathy piece again. I think we really have to, to listen and, and care for our people, not just care about what our next steps are for ourselves individually. Totally. Um, And I think, you know, as far as the RCMP goes, it's that education piece right, right from the beginning. I know we didn't have it uh, 24 years ago to tell us, you know, this is going to be difficult and, and you may see the effects of this down the road. I'm a completely different person today than I was when I joined the RCMP. Um, mm. So, you know, you get in as a, as a new police officer, the files and that intensity and, and the more trauma almost seems to drive you um, when you're younger. That, that's why yeah. you get into it. But I didn't know that as the years go on, particularly when I had my children, that even mm-hmm. those files earlier on were going to be retroactive as far as affecting me. Yeah. For so that, sure. that was a big piece to know that it may not bother me now, but as I get older and process some mm-hmm. of life, it might come back and, and it did. And it became a big issue for me to try and process all of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think that's actually really insightful that piece of it's retroactive because you're right. I think a lot of people don't, when they experience the degree of discomfort and impact of post-traumatic stress or burnout or vicarious trauma or whatever, whatever the thing might be, they often are looking for that, like, well, what is it? What's, what's, what's that about? Where did that come from? And it is important that we know that it can be retroactive and that things that are happening in our lives right now can be triggers to things that we thought we were fine with 
Right. But feel far less fine when we're in a different context now. Right. Yeah. 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 No, that, that was a big part. Certain certain connectors, right? Once once you get married, yeah. once you have kids, once once there's more connections to you personally, it's harder to compartmentalize. Well, and I think a different level of vulnerability, right? right? Like it's one thing when it's just you, yeah. right? When it's just you kind of like doing your thing and the only person it really impacts is you. But as soon as there branches out to being impact for others, suddenly we have far more awareness of the ways that that makes us and them differently vulnerable right. to harm. And that's the piece that we want to protect more than anything else. Yeah. 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 I know one of the pieces that uh, stood out to me, I feel like it was in one of your blog posts, um, was you talked about this idea of how being in the RCMP felt like family. And that in a lot of ways, that was even language that was used was like, we are family. This is this is a connection that we have together. And then that feeling of and then I walk out the door and I feel kind of forgotten on the other side of that. And I know that that's a piece that I've had shared with me by a number of other people um, within my clinical work is that feeling of, I thought I was so connected here. And then as soon as I wasn't there anymore, that connection felt like it vanished out from under me and that it, yeah. it adds this layer in the midst of it right. that makes it so much harder to heal too. Yeah, yeah. It, um, it was a bit of an eye-opener for me to see... Um, well, you, you feel forgotten, um, you feel detached and kicked out of that family. Like it really is something they instill in you right from the, the days that you graduate is that now you're a part of this big family. And there's a sense of pride, especially, you know, you join the RCMP. For me, it was a family thing. So yeah. I was joining on the heels of my dad, <clears throat> my brother. Legacy. Right. Yeah. So there's a real big sense of pride. Um, Mm. when you become a part of that family and it takes a real big toll on you when you're not a part of that family anymore. Yeah. Um, you can imagine what it's like for, for even, you know, you, it's, it's the equivalent of taking your child and saying, I'm sorry, you're ill, but you have to be better by the end of the week or you can't come back to this family. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of pressure for you to get better. If it doesn't happen, I'm sorry, we have to just let you go. Like it just, it doesn't make sense. So I think for people entering the organization, don't get so tied down in the family aspect of it. You have your family. Um, Your family are your people you go home to at the end of the day. And the RCMP and policing and first responders, although we may feel it's a bit more of a calling, it still is at the end of the day, just a job. It's a career where we are helping others. But um, your people, when you walk through your door at the end of the day, are at your actual family. I love that piece. Like, I think one of the challenges for a lot of people who uh, either retire from or injured out of or whatever of first response and frontline work, feel this sense of identity loss because it's not just a job. It's who I am as a person. And one of the hardest pieces of the work I find as the clinician kind of guiding that process is detangling who I am as a human who exists in the world and has value regardless of whether I'm doing this job or not from the sense of I am only valuable if I am doing this job. Right. Um, And recognizing that the job is just a job. 
Um, it's a job that means a lot of things and that matters a ton, yeah. but it, it is just a job. Yeah. Um, and that that is really, really complexly interwoven. Right. Right. Yeah. Especially when you look at how intense we get with it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's families that become affected by it. I know my family was affected by it. Um, yeah. I was certainly affected by it. And then, you know, is it worth sacrificing your own self and your own family yeah. um, to have what you believe is more important than your actual right. family? It just, right. you know, it's just a different mindset. And I think we need to tell our people that you're a part of a career and you're a part of something meaningful, but your family is who you go home to at the end of the day. Your family yeah. is who supports you when you are fighting your own injuries. <clears throat> so I think, um, I think a stronger message around your loyalties and, and who that lies with is really important for people just starting out. Yeah. I feel like it might change people's willingness to consider an escape hatch. Like, I think I often talk with people who are newer to the work and I often will say something like, so have you thought about your exit plan? Right. Um, And not that, you know, not everyone needs the exit plan. Not everyone needs to get out sooner than when they hit whatever the mark is. But certainly I think that it is presumptuous of us to believe that we are going to do the like 30, 35 year career and make it all the way through and not ever need an escape plan. And so when we believe that and we uh, operate out of that belief, I think we set ourselves up to experience way more harm because we don't have an option. We feel stuck, right? So now I have to get to 30 years or 35 years. That's, and it doesn't help that your guys' jobs also dangle the pension. Yeah. Right. I find that that's the thing for a lot of people where they're like, but I just have to make it like three more years yeah, and right. then I've made 30 and then mm-hmm. I get the better pension. I get mm-hmm. a little bit more. Yeah. And I've had a few people who've actually done the math on that. And they're like, I mean, I make maybe like 200 more bucks a month. How yeah. much is that worth for my life? That's true. Right. Yeah. Is that really, but it does, it feels like this carrot. Right. Right. Come on, you can get like, it's yeah. just, it's hard. It's hard yeah. to pull the plug on that. And I think having a sense of, I may not be able to do this for my entire career. What would be my backup plan? Yes. is something that we should be supporting and guiding more Yeah, for people who go into this line of work. For sure. Like you, you don't go into this line of work thinking, Oh, you know, I'll give it at 10 years and see how it goes from there. You're in it totally. and, and you're wholeheartedly in it for, for the duration of whatever that time is from pension beyond. Uh, I don't think we're seeing very many people hit those 35 year marks anymore. I think people are are hitting burnout a little too soon Um, or not a little too soon, but sooner than, than the 35 year mark. Um, But yeah, I think it's, it's important to just know what your purpose is outside of that career. And that, that was pretty difficult for me. I have to say with retirement as, as, I, t- I tried to think about if I could come back to the RCMP and at, mm-hmm. at a certain point I realized that just wasn't an option for me. So retirement was the way it was going to work for me. Yeah. Um, and as good as that has been for me, it was difficult because now I'm without that purpose. And I think mm-hmm. for people that are, are entering into that zone of retirement and, and they're leaving and they're thinking it's going to be all 
roses and sunshine for some it's not like it's a part of your identity that you start to feel like you're losing and it's really really important um to have a sense of purpose it doesn't mean you go into another career it just means you have something to go to where you feel like you're doing something and making a difference and it's something that gets you out of bed at the end of the day totally Well, and I think a challenge related to the job that you do, a challenge related to the way that it's broken into shift sets that limit certain pieces adds to the fact that often we're not cultivating a life outside of the work. So, you know, like I've had a lot of people who talk about, you know, I'd I'd love to join like a baseball league or something in my after hours time, but because I'm four on four off, I can't commit to something that's a regular weekly commitment. And so I don't do those things. And when we don't shape a strong life outside of the work that gives us a sense of like purpose and connection and fun and play and silly and some of those things that we actually need, like they're actual human needs, we have it entirely built into the job. And so when we do go off work for whatever reason that is, there's no cushion because we we haven't cultivated any of those things that would be the buffer right right yeah and it's funny because i have this conversation i had for a period of time this really interesting thing happening where every client i was referred for a period of like six months were all these guys who were nearing retirement or in retirement and it was hilarious to do this process where they were like i'm gonna golf every day and it's gonna be great and it's this and it's that and then they'd get into it and like three weeks and they're like, I'm going crazy. Yeah. Um, and we would talk about like, right, you've poured your life into this time and you think like, it sounds like it's going to be like a holiday mm-hmm. and it's not. It's and not. it's so hard and uncomfortable when you come into it and like, you can only golf so long before yeah. you want to kill everyone you're golfing with. Yeah. It's not as fun as you think it is. When it goes back to the piece of where your comfort zone is too, when you're used to policing, you're used to working at an elevated level of anxiety and stress. And so you drop out of that thinking, wow, this is going to be great. I don't have to deal with it anymore. So relaxing. Yeah. And your body just kind of goes, I need something more. I need that purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. For sure. Yeah. Okay, I have one last question for you before we wrap up. Mm -hmm. Given your experiences and the work that you're now doing advocating for systems to change and to consider mental health needs more substantially and these various pieces, do you feel like there's hope? Like, do you feel like there's genuine, actual hope in the systems changing? Yes, I do. I mean, I I want to be hopeful. Um, It's going to take a little while to get there and to get people to listen and um, to open up. And I think just keeping these conversations going is so important. Um, You know, we're just starting to become aware of what all of this looks like. Uh, We're starting to become um, a little bit more forgiving with that stigma. Mm -hmm. It's starting to break and release and and people are standing up and saying, I'm I'm affected by all of this. I think it would be, it would be really disappointing to see that no change comes from it. It, it would yeah. just be, in my opinion, it would be neglectful. I don't yeah. think you can keep it up the way it's been going. Really mm-hmm. good people that want to do really good things are not getting the help that they need. Yeah. Yeah. I so appreciate your willingness to come and chat today, Jen. It has been lovely. 
thank you for inviting me i'm I'm so thankful for these opportunities where we we kind of get to share the stories and you know it's been amazing how many people have come forward and shared their own stories and their own vulnerability and i'm so thankful for it um it's a it's a good start it's a good place to keep this conversation going and and i thank you for for bringing awareness to it and, and all the help that you're providing as well Thanks for that, Jen. And I just, on the flip side of that, really want to thank you for for being willing to go into the places that risk kind of sharing your story, because I recognize that that's not easy and that that comes with some costs of its own. Um, and yet I think stories like these are really, really important for people to hear and hear themselves in um, and to feel that same sense that you have felt of I'm not an island and I'm not in this all by myself. Yeah. Um, and so I really value that that you're willing to take the risk and be in the arena with the rest of us. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. You bet. As we wrap up today, thank you again to Jennifer for joining us. Check out her blog, fuelforfirstresponders.com and check out our show notes for more about Jen's advocacy efforts. Please continue to share our podcast with those, you know, as we continue to work at supporting those of you on the front lines. Let us know how you're doing, questions you have, or feedback about the show. You can find me on social media at Lindsay A. Foss or email me at support at thrive-life.ca. My contact info is always in the show notes on our podcast webpage. And the last, but certainly not least, we're going to be running a contest on social media in the coming week with some really fun prizes for those who participate. So find and follow me on Facebook and Instagram to have a chance to win. I'm so excited to see you guys there. Until next time, stay safe.